You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning, church family. It's now time for us to hear the word of God together. So if you can remain standing, this passage is Matthew 16, 24 through 28. This may be a passage that you're familiar with, um, or it may be one that you haven't heard before, but I encourage you to take a deep breath and allow the water of the word to wash over you. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of God is, coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Kirsten. And Arinia, it's cool to have a baby get to help do the, <laughs> the scripture reading, isn't it? Uh, by the way, I didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of getting to open up God's Word with you now. So let's pray as we get ready to do that. Father, we just invite you here. As we sang in this song, Waymaker, earlier, we know that you're a God who works miracles. You're a God who's present here, and you want to work miracles in each one of our lives and oftentimes you do that through your word. Would you, would you come and speak to us, God? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to receive what you want to say to us. And, and for me, as I share, would you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you? I invite you here, Holy Spirit, to do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're just joining us, we're continuing in a sermon series that we've been in for over three years now, off and on, uh, in Matthew's gospel called Upside Down Kingdom, where we're looking at what it means for Jesus' kingdom to come to earth, and it's really something that's jarring for us down here, and, and as it comes, we realize, oh, wow, it's, it's upside down from everything that we know, and yet it's actually the way that things ought to be. It's actually right side up. And today, I want to start... Uh, as we enter into this text that we've just heard read, I want to start by talking to you about a guy named Robert Johnson. 
You might have heard of him before. He was an American musician, and he was a songwriter. He was kind of the master of the Mississippi Delta blues. Uh, if you're into that kind of a thing, he was only recorded twice, once in 1936 and once in 1937. But within those two recordings, he's probably one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. You don't get most of our music from the last century without him. You don't get Elvis or the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Michael Jackson or Soundgarden or Beyonce. You don't get nearly all of American music if you don't have Robert Johnson and the Mississippi Delta Blues. In fact, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes him as the very first rock star, <laughs> if you can imagine that. Although it's kind of a, a poor choice, poor thing to call him, because really the guy was fairly uh, obscure during his own lifetime. It was ma mainly after his life that he became well-known. And other than these two recordings that we have of him and a couple of pictures, very little was known about Robert Johnson and his life. In fact, so much so that historians have tried to piece things together from various accounts. And what's happened as a result of that is that legends have arisen about him. And the most famous one is that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil to achieve musical success. He sold his soul to the devil to achieve musical success. Now, this is a pretty mythological story. If any of you have ever read it before, it's kind of uh, not a historical account per se. And, and there wasn't some specific event, probably, where Robert Johnson decisively did that. But his story does provide for us a very interesting framework for today's text. Because he sold his soul in order to achieve musical success. What is worth selling your soul for? And you know what? When I ask that question, no one is neutral. No one is neutral on that issue, whether you're religious or not. We all traffic in the giving of ourselves in exchange for something. We give our lives for our career. We give our lives for success. We give our lives for that padded bank account that we so desperately want. We give our lives for that relationship with that person. We give our lives to avoid pain or to acquire pleasure. So what is worth giving your life for? That's the question. And probably a, a more appropriate question, who is worth giving your life to? The answer that we arrive at today is very simple. It's based on our return on our investment. So, in order to words, what do we get for what we give? What if there is something that is so valuable that it's actually worth giving everything for? And the big idea we're going to see in Jesus' teaching is that the only worthwhile life is found when we take up our cross. To set it up a little bit, we have to remember where we are in this book in Matthew's gospel. And last week, we saw Peter's faith and we saw his failure. And it was all surrounding this thing that Jesus shared. He was going to suffer. 
He was going to die. He was going to rise. And Peter, who had just confessed Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, he could not possibly imagine a Messiah so weak, one that would suffer, one that would die. And yet here Jesus is essentially reaffirming that his life would be marked by self-denial and suffering and crucifixion for the sake of others, for the sake of you, for the sake of me. And now Jesus says that that would be the way of life for all of his followers. This is what it means for us to think differently than the way that Peter was thinking. Peter, Jesus said, was, he had his mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. For us to have our mind on the things of God is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. So let's look at the first verse. Take up your cross, Jesus says, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, in our day and age, people wear crosses around their necks all the time, even people who aren't Christians, right? We are so used to a crucified Messiah. We are so used to Jesus being that, that the, the, the shock of a crucified Savior is probably worn off for most of us. We're probably a bit numb to this reality. But think about how shocking this is, or how shocking this would have been to hear for the very first time. Think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come on, come get crucified with me. How many of you signed up for that when you chose to follow Jesus? Come on, come and get crucified with me. That's what he's saying. Now, remember last week, we saw Peter in such shock that Jesus would get crucified that he rebuked him. What king wins the decisive victory over his enemies by laying his life down before them? That makes no sense to us. What savior rescues uh, his people by sacrificing himself? And the answer is no one but Jesus. No one but Jesus. And you know what? As Christians, we find our identity in Him. We find our identity in a crucified Savior. Christ denied Himself for our sake, and so following Him, we deny ourselves for Christ's sake. Now, some of you might be going, okay, but this feels really abstract. What are we talking about here? What does it really mean to deny ourselves and take up our cross? Well, before we can answer that question, we really have to first answer the question, what it doesn't mean. Because a lot of people misconstrue what Jesus has to say here. So what does it not mean to deny ourselves and take up our cross? It would be to say that a disciple must stop doing anything that was in their lives before choosing to follow Jesus. It, this is what it doesn't mean. We, we don't have to turn away from every single thing in our lives in order to follow Jesus. And likewise, similar thing, we don't have to sacrifice everything that we love in order to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Think about this. There are many, many things that are in our lives before we meet Jesus 
that must merely be redeemed, must be handed over to Him in worship rather than given up altogether. I heard a story once of a woman who decided to follow Jesus, and she left her family, her husband and her kids, to do it. That's not what you do, okay? Just to be clear, you are not sacrificing everything that you love. God would choose to redeem your relationship with your biological family. And likewise, following Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross does not mean that we practice asceticism. Asceticism is harming yourself in order to achieve spiritual growth. A lot of Christians over time have thought that that's what we're supposed to do. But if that's not what it means, if it doesn't mean those things, what does it mean to deny ourselves and take up our cross? I've taken this from the ESV Study Bible, which if you're looking for a really simple, easy to understand and kind of digestible resource, very helpful, here's what it says. It says, Jesus is telling us a disciple must deny themselves, which means, they say, to die to our self-will. Get that? So everything that is our will, we die to, we give up. They say next, Jesus tells us to take up our cross, and they say that means to embrace God's will, no matter the cost, all the way unto death. And finally, Jesus tells us here to follow him, which means living a life of self-giving love, obeying Jesus' commands. And so to bring that down to the ground level, (laughs) For our everyday lives, let me give you some examples of what taking up your cross might mean. Taking up your cross might mean changing a diaper. (laughs) Amen? I heard an amen. It might mean changing a diaper when you would rather stay on the sofa and watch your spouse do it. Amen? Come on. Come on. (laughs) Taking up your cross might mean... Filling out TPS reports at work when you would rather give your team leader hell over it. Amen? Taking up your cross might mean sticking around at the construction site that you're working at in order to clean up while everyone else goes home. For me, taking up my cross might mean going to Costco once a month so that I can help our family's food budget get a little smaller. Taking up your cross, and that's suffering, by the way. I just did that a couple days ago. That's why I thought of it. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Costco. It was my second time in the last 25 years, and it, it was really, I was praying a lot. Taking up your cross might mean repenting of that sin that you've just clung to for all those years, never wanting to let go. Taking up your cross might mean letting your identity be defined first by Jesus before you start adding on all these other things. Ultimately, He is who you find yourself in. Taking up your cross might mean holding your tongue when you would rather run headlong into an argument. Amen? Guys, is this too convicting? I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Taking up your cross might mean forgiving that person who sinned against you, even if it means they won't experience justice in this life. Amen? Taking up your cross might mean getting mocked 
or passive, in Seattle more likely, passive-aggressively shunned for being a Christian. Taking up your cross might mean, yes, I'm going to say it, might mean dying for Jesus. Now, how does that sound to you? <laughs> does that sound good? Jesus makes the assumption that that doesn't sound good. He makes the assumption that we don't believe that denying ourselves and identifying ourselves with a crucified Christ is worth it. And why does he make that assumption? Because it's true. <laughs> because apart from him, but apart from him transforming us, we don't think that it's worth it. Because we want to be the Lord of our own lives, thank you very much. We want to be in control, or at least think that we're in control, trusting, that complete, uh, trusting completely that following our own will is the best thing for us. And of course, that false belief, and it is a false belief, it's only reinforced by the culture around us, right? This is the water we're swimming in every single day. Our culture celebrates self-service rather than self-sacrifice, amen? And imagine for a moment, just to illustrate that, if, if Hollywood were personified, if Hollywood were a guy, he was a spiritual guru, right? And Hollywood is teaching his disciples one day, and he says, if anyone would be happy, let him affirm himself and take up his own self-interest and follow me. Right? That's a truly appealing message to us and in our culture because the default mode of the human heart, the sinful human heart, is self-service. So you want to sell me that, I'm buying, I'm ready, right? Uh, the default mode of the sinful human heart is self-indulgence, it's me-centeredness, it's me-time, it's me-harmony.com, which if you haven't seen it, I think is the best illustration of what I'm talking about. It was an SNL skit back in the day, and I just have to show it to you because there's nothing that helps us to understand how me-centered we are taught to be than the satire of this little video here. <laughs> okay. Isn't that so true, though? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if a real website called meharmony.com somehow came to to exist at some point. But you know what? Maybe you've been living effectively the me harmony life. <laughs> you've been living the life for yourself, looking to your own self-interest, and, and you've come to the end of that, and you realize that's not what you're made for. That's not what we're made for. You've been living for yourself and just comes up empty every time. This is why so many people in our culture are wanting to take up the mantle of those who are powerless, wanting to take up the mantle of those who are marginalized. They realize there's something more. <laughs> there's something more valuable than just me living for me. And so what do they do? They, they sign up to go and they serve, to, to, to go serve at the soup kitchen. And they nearly actually go do it. They, they, 
They post something on social media. They're, they're doing their slacktivism thing, right? They're, they're talking about all the things that they wish were different about the world. You guys remember Coney 2012, slacktivism, right? But even for the many people who aren't slacktivists and they actually want to go and help those in need, the problem is it's not as simple as going from me-centered to others-centered. That's a good thing to do. If the world were full of people who were others-centered, this would be a better world. But it's not that simple. Anyone who has tried going from me-centered to others-centered realizes that it leads to its own emptiness because you're pouring yourself out without going to the source and being filled. That's what Jesus calls uh, the source, the living waters. That's his spirit filling you so that you are actually pouring yourself out from an overflow of his love for you. Being connected to the source of all true self-giving love. And you see, that's what Christ offers us. Though his kingdom is upside down from what we're used to, when you enter it, when you take up your cross, you discover something that's far more beautiful than you could have ever imagined when you were living the me-centered life. And even more beautiful than you ever could have imagined when you were strictly serving others from an empty faucet. And yet, even as wonderful as it is, being in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we still struggle with our moments of doubt. Every single one of us does. And in those moments, Jesus reminds us that it's worth taking up our cross. He's going to give us three reasons why it's worth it. Here's the first one. Why should we take up our cross? Because dying to ourselves is the only way to find life. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have been taught that living for yourself is the only way to find life. But Jesus reveals the actual truth. Dying to ourselves is the only way to find life. Especially dying to ourselves for Christ's sake. So, so how is he saying we find life? By losing it for Christ's sake. Now think about that. That is, seems so counterintuitive. Upside down even, right? If you asked me how, uh, how to save money, for example, and I told you, you save money by giving it away, you would tell me I was crazy, right? You save money by saving it. But Jesus says, you save your life, and the plan is going to backfire on you. It will. You will lose it. Trying to maintain control, trying to follow your own will in the end, only results in death. And yet all of us still try and find life apart from Him. What have you tried? Where have you sought to find life? What have you tried selling your soul for? Can I tell you one thing I've tried, or a few things I've tried over the years? As a teenager, I tried finding life in the approval of girlfriends. I tried finding life in music. 
And even after I became a Christian, later on in life, I, I, I got so stressed with work and everything else that was going on in my life, I tried to find life in alcohol, not in drunkenness, but just in escape, just enough to escape, or, or in food, just enough to escape. I tried to find life in how many followers I had on social media, I'll admit it. That's why I left social media in 2017, actually. I tried to find life in my accomplishments at work. And you know what, friends? All of them, all of them failed me. Every single one. They all came up short. The only times when I find life are when I deny myself for Christ's sake. You want to find life, you've got to deny yourself for Christ's sake. And so, we should take up our cross, Jesus says, because dying to ourselves is the only way to find life. And, and on the other hand, looking at that other side of that same coin, remaining the Lord of our lives actually forfeits life. That's what Jesus tells us in this second one. Why should we take up our cross? Number two, because nothing in this world is more valuable than eternal life with God. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is a simple matter of value, right? What's worth more? This itty-bitty little 90 years, if we're lucky, if we're fortunate, the 90 years that we get on this earth or eternity, which, which one? Which one is more valuable? You try and do the math. Or, or actually, let's for a minute here, let's do some science. How about this? Y'all are like, come on, Pastor Joel, don't do science. We know what happened last time you tried to do science. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, way out of my field of expertise here. But this week I was talking to my daughters about this text. And they happened to be studying, I don't know if they even learned this in their current class, but they, they happen to be studying uh, chemistry at the moment, and they told me, when we were reading this text, they told me it's like electrons. And I was like, eh, what? They explained that electrons have what's called negligible mass. Some, I'm thinking of a couple of you scientists here in the room. This is probably like small potatoes science, but this was news to me. I didn't know this. Has, electrons have negligible mass. And I'm like, eh, what? What are you talking about? They said, in other words, the mass is so small that when you're doing an experiment, you don't even bother counting it. That's how small it is. Okay? That, that's, that's what Jesus is telling us. It's like electrons, or if you're more on my intellectual level, this, I'll give you an example that you can understand like I can. This life is like a drop in the bucket. That's what Jesus is telling us. In fact, to take that analogy even further, if eternity with God is like all the oceans in the world, this life is only a single drop of water when lived apart from God. Now, it's not that there's nothing in this life that's worth something. There's actually great value here. That's part of why we can't quite imagine the greatness of eternity. 
It's hard for us to fathom because while there is, yes, heartbreak and pain and sin and all sorts of horrible tragedies that fill our lives today, we also have incredible things that God has gifted us with, right? We have mountains and we have birds and trees and, and we, we have the laughter of children, right? We have the satisfaction of finishing that project at work. We have amazing food and flavors from all over the world. We have beautiful music. We have love, and I could keep going on and on. There is so much that makes our very, very short lives exponentially valuable, for sure. So don't make the mistake of hearing Jesus say that there's nothing worth anything in this life. His point is just that surrendering your will to God in this life is a small price to pay for what you get in return. He's saying, don't settle. Don't settle for this fleeting and finite when you can get the future and forever. There's nothing in this world that is more valuable than eternal life with God, and so don't forfeit your soul. He tells us, don't, don't forfeit your soul. Take up your cross. And he gives us a third and final reason why we should take up our cross, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So why should we take up our cross? Because our eternal destiny depends on it. Jesus says. But before we can get into how taking up our cross relates to our eternal destiny, some of you are probably wondering, like, what is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about, like, his second coming? Is, what, what is he talking about with people who are right in front of him who won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming? What's, what's, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is echoing Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14. Jesus loves this passage. He echoes it all the time. Here's what it says. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's, Jesus, that's where Jesus gets that name from. And he came to where? He came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus has this picture in his mind when he says what he has just said in verses 27 and 28. And, and so where, if we look at this D Daniel passage, where is the Son of Man going? He's going to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And why is he going there? It's because he is going to receive his kingdom, Daniel says. And so now we might say, okay, but when is that taking place? Well, it's not taking place at his second coming. I'll tell you that, because he's going in the wrong direction, if, if, if that's the case. The Son of Man is going to heaven to be with his Father, and this is taking place after his vindication. See, at the end of Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus rises from the dead, and, and the Bible says, Jesus says, he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And 40 days after that, Jesus ascends into heaven. He's fulfilling Daniel's prophecy. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, this is unfortunate for you if you're a conspiracy theorist or you like wearing one of those tinfoil hats or, you know, you've got a YouTube channel with prophecies on it uh, because nowhere in the Bible does Jesus or anyone tell us precisely when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Nowhere. Only that he has the right to be the judge. Why does he have the right? It's because God the Son left heaven, came to earth, took on human flesh, became one of us, lived a perfect sinless life, suffered, died, rose, and then ascended to heaven where now he is ruling and reigning over all things. It's because of what he has done that he has granted the right to judge the living and the dead. He is the King and Lord of the universe. Amen? He came in humility, but he will return one day in glory. And it's because of his authority. It's because of his power and glory that he proves that he is worthy not just to judge us, but he's worthy to give up our lives to follow. That's what Jesus is reminding us of here. We need no other reason, and yet he gives us another one in this warning that we should take up our cross because our eternal destiny depends on it. Now, I just preached a message on the final judgment just a few weeks ago during Advent. Uh, if you're interested in looking at that message, it's called Make Room for His Judgment. But in light of the fact that I just preached that, I'm not going to go into tons of detail today around the final judgment. All I want to do is try and summarize it for you and summarize what Jesus has said right here in verses 27 and 28. Jesus is saying, every single person will be judged on the final judgment. And their eternal destiny will be determined, he says, read it again, according to what each person has done. And there are two outcomes from that. Depending on what each person has done, for those who have taken up their cross, in other words, people who have had faith and trust in Jesus, they've followed in his footsteps, they're going to be repaid they're going to be repaid for it, repaid with eternal life with God. Incredible. What a small price to pay for those who have not taken up their cross, people who have placed their faith and trust ultimately in themselves by being the lords of their own lives, they will be repaid, not with eternal life with God, but with eternal life, eternal death apart from God. It's heavy. It's really heavy. But it's pretty simple, right? And I hope you can see the truth in what Jesus is saying here. Taking up our cross with him is worth it. 
I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion after hearing what he said. I want to tell you about somebody who believed him, a guy named Polycarp, and though his name sounds like it, he's not a Seattleite. Um, he, <laughs> just kidding. He was, a, he was a guy in the first and second century. Uh, he was a disciple, actually, of the Apostle John, if you could believe it. So this guy's like first-generation Christian, if you will. And he was the Bishop of Smyrna, which was in what is modern-day Turkey. And he was coming toward the end of his life, and as he did, persecution began to increase in that region over the, in the next hundred years after it would, it would get really bad where all Christians were being killed and imprisoned. But at that point, local governmental authorities called pro-councils were angry with Christians, My, kind of minor persecutions for the most part. They were angry at Christians for not worshiping Caesar as God And they were angry about it because they feared that this would lead to a rebellion. And now Polycarp, he's a guy who's widely known for being unwilling to bend his knee to the empire, unwilling to worship Caesar. And again, this is at the end of his life. He's 86 years old. You can imagine the dude is fragile, right? And because his life was under threat, he chose to retreat to a nearby town. And like Jesus, as he had retreated, one of his closest friends eventually betrayed him to the authorities, and, and they come and they find him. And when he's arrested, what does Polycarp do? He asks if he could just have an hour to pray. Amazing, right? And what does he choose to pray for in that moment? What would you choose to pray for in that moment? He prays for his captors. And then he's brought to a stadium in Smyrna, and, and he's commanded by the proconsul to repent. And we use that word a lot in Christianity. It means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of action. But in this case, it meant changing, uh, polycarp changing to now affirm that Caesar was a god, right? And of course, what does he do? He refuses. And the proconsul threatens to kill him. He says, I'm going to have you ravaged by beasts. And Polycarp still refuses. Then the proconsul threatens to burn him alive. And Polycarp is recorded as having said, how can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. But when they lit the fire around him, they found it, it wouldn't touch him. It wouldn't come close. God is working some kind of a miracle showing that he was protecting him. And Polycarp, knowing that it was only a matter of time before the flames eventually made their way to him, knowing he was going to die, he says, he prays a prayer. He says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. 
You can imagine how frustrated all those soldiers and governmental authorities were as they're seeing this happen, right? And these executioners come finally, I'm sure, very angrily, and they come and they stab him with a spear because the fire wouldn't kill him. And as he bled out, surrounded by flames, his lifeless body eventually caught fire and burned up. But you know what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter because his soul had gone to eternal bliss with God. Why am I telling you this story? Because Polycarp, friends, had been captivated by Jesus. Have you been captivated by Jesus? The one who denied himself and took up his cross for our sake. Cost him everything. On that night, he was on his knees in a garden praying, overwhelmed with the stress of what he was facing and, and what he would face. It says his sweat was like drops of blood. But despite the distress of taking all of the sins of the world upon himself, what did he pray? He prayed to God and he said, not my will, but yours be done. See, friends, we may never, well, we will never face what Jesus faced, right? That's why he's our Savior. And we may never face what Polycarp faced. But nonetheless, today we can deny ourselves. We can take up our cross for Christ, even if it means one day it would lead to our own death. How? When we remember that Jesus denied himself for our sake. And he will return to judge the world for God's sake. See, the decision then, it becomes much, much easier, much, much clearer than ever before. Have you been captivated by Jesus? I have. I have. There is no place I would rather go to find life. There is no life I would rather seek to model my life after. There's no one greater than him, amen? amen. Perfect, self-giving love. Perfect, beautiful self-sacrifice. The only worthwhile life is found when we take up our cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for doing what we could not do. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, dying for the sins of the whole world, for my sins, for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. And we thank you that your life is not just something that saves, but it's something that models, that, that gives us an example to follow. God, would we follow in your son's footsteps? Would you reveal the ways in which we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross day after day. And we ask it for Jesus' glory and in his name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.